Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil where... A historian. And a literature scholar. Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Will Cat be able to turn this around? Can we trust this robber guy? supposed to be a story about epic heroes and vile villains? What all this military stuff end? Sure, this is just the tutorial arc, and we'll get to the real adventure soon. Those who live by the sword kill those who don't. Dread Emperor Vile the First. So in this chapter, we get Kat's true introduction to the War College, to the, the games that take place in Spite Valley, a name I still love, and it we jump right into the action. The chapter begins with an ambush taking place. We're in the midst of the ambush. We we are jumping into the scene with Cat waking up under attack. The ambush goes poorly for Rat Company, but thanks to Cat's quick thinking and named enhanced muscles and speed, the battle. The war, if you want to call it that, is not lost. She rescues the standard. She keeps a few of her soldiers intact and flees into the woods, escaping uh, the hellhound's assault. Um, And they hide out for a bit and regroup enough to launch an assault on a few of the hellhound's soldiers in a watchtower to get a prisoner for interrogation purposes. And that about wraps up this chapter. It's just a pretty action-packed, short, sweet, and to-the-point bit that gets us into the fight, helps us understand what's going on with the war games, how they work a little bit, and sets up the conflict, the obstacles that Cat will be working towards overcoming over the next few chapters. It starts rather suddenly. The first words in the entire chapter are, I woke up to the sound of fighting. Now, we've we've all read this text. If we haven't, get out. Why are you here? There will be spoilers. But other than the fact that Roland dies in the last battle, the trope of Catherine waking up to the sound of fighting continues playing its discordant tone throughout this series. I don't mean every rest is an invitation to be woken with battle. Every phase of every war sees a scene with a night assault on Catherine's position. 
But it's regularly enough that you'd think we were using first edition Dungeons and Dragons encounter tables. Well, sure. If you were an enemy making a plan or all of reality trying to nudge things against the person who is proving far too successful, you'd probably make sure that most of the assaults happened while Catherine Foundling was even just temporarily out of the picture. She's she's not the person you want to be going up against when she's fully aware. Try you got to get the advantages you can, and that definitely applies to this instance. Cat is definitely very scary, and fate and fate itself is working to make sure she loses this war game at the Price College. I acknowledge the danger inherent in Catherine Foundling. You acknowledge the danger inherent in Catherine Foundling. Reality will acknowledge the danger inherent in Catherine Foundling, but I don't know how Catherine chooses to assess situations. I don't know the rubric by which Catherine elects to assess situations. It's nighttime, and an attack comes, which, by the way, feels very fast to me. We just got introduced to the college. I was like, oh, yeah, they're actually in the middle of the game. They're, this, it's, it's happening right now. Oh, Catherine got in just under the wire. But there's a night assault, and... Her first reaction, other than buckling on her sword belt and hopping from one foot to the next, she considers a night attack on the very first night reckless. I am not a military scholar. Would you be able to tell me how that's exactly reckless? I would think a night assault, when your opponent is theoretically less ready, on the first night, when your opponent is theoretically less dug in, it's a choice, but it doesn't seem like a bullheadedly reckless move to me so night assaults historically speaking uh well we'll say historically speaking prior to the advent of things like modern technology that make night assaults much more possible i guess i don't i don't know much about modern warfare i'm not gonna speak there it night assaults are horribly risky they go wrong about not as a big often... call of duty guy are you right exactly um definitely more of a a Fortnite player. Um, <clears throat> the a night assault is just as likely to go horribly wrong as it is to go right. You get advantages in initiative and surprise and that sort of thing, but you've got a number of issues working against you. Um, you've got the fact that a night assault is going to be inherently an attack steeped in chaos and. Especially when you're dealing with the legions of terror, which are obviously modeled pretty heavily after the Roman legions. Discipline is what makes them a fighting force working together. They're, you know, shield walls, that sort of thing. They're keeping units cohesive. That is a tough thing to maintain when you can't see the soldier two feet to your left. It's you run the risk of units getting separated, of soldiers getting lost, of, I mean, frankly, friendly fire. You run the risk of, a huge risk of people getting hurt just in the traversal to the battle. You are walking through the dark, in this case, not exactly clear terrain. There's, they're in, they're not in the woods here, but they're near them. The, there is a path that's called out. And they're certainly some... not out of the woods. <laughs> right. <laughs> There is a, a path or a road that's specifically called out, but it's not the main focus here. So this is people in armor walking through the through rough terrain where they can't see where they're putting their feet. I mean, later on in this chapter, one of Kat's soldiers 
sprains their ankle during just a normal fight walking up a hill. That's the kind of thing that could happen a dozen times in even in this small of a fight leading up to it. There are it's just it's it's a it's you are hoping that the surprise is enough to tip the scales in what is more or less otherwise going to be a toss up because more so than even in normal battles which are already pretty far in this direction once contact is initiated you lose all control the people in charge can't see what's happening the soldiers can't see what's happening it's a mess night assaults are always reckless sometimes they pay off often they don't but hellhound has cheat codes i was about to say very good though catherine has the greatest cheat code of all as well as she as soon as she glimpses his face she calls out sergeant hockram report and in true hockram fashion he gives her everything she needs to know it's when you said the, the greatest cheat code of all, I was 50-50 on whether you were going to follow that up with Hakram or a name. So I'm glad that I'm glad that you picked the right one. Hakram, not yet, but, you know, short term, very quickly a twofer. True. Everything she needs to know, dear listeners, is I have no idea what's going on. I got woken up when the soldiers on watch went missing. And between that and the chaos around her, it's enough for Catherine to realize they're going for the standard. The, the thing they're camped near and that the entire point is to capture. Catherine is a sharp soldier, a leader of men and women and orcs, orc men and orc women and non-binary and like a half fae or something and goblin and goblin men and goblin women and, and half fae. We do, we've, we've talked about the fact that Cat is sometimes not great at reading people except in the instances where she's looking for motivations or weaknesses and i think that that is true but she is always excellent at reading a battlefield she i mean this is a skill she has now clearly to some level and sure this one's pretty obvious they're trying to take the thing that lets them win but there is a moment where she thinks that the actual the the, the point of the battle is to kill i was about to say to knock out or capture as many of uh, rat company as possible but then she realizes that this is actually just a equivalency right this is the uh, attempt to fully win in the first contact in the first night which is a bold move for sure it's it's a gamble that pays off pretty well for for hellhound but not in exactly the way that they were aiming for us but you know cat cat does piece that together that is i think one of her great skills and one we see a lot of later on especially as she hones it so i think i think this is just a a little peek into the battle manager that cat becomes i did like to think of cat as management in this case middle management but she is not the only one with leadership expertise around the hellhound is perhaps the sharpest military mind of the generation we later find still developing but she makes ingenious plays no one would think of like creative formations yeah uh, there's something i wanted to talk about a little bit here maybe just point out at one point the first company soldiers are on a hill great that's where you want to be and they form a wedge sure this was done with shield walls no problem but it's a non-moving defensive wedge which is an odd choice to my understanding wedges are a formation that was used absolutely uh typically and as far as i know exclusively as an offensive tool it's meant to 
break into an enemy formation to disrupt a formation, but it's also a very fragile formation to hold. And on defensive, you lose all of the advantages of a wedge and have and create a new disadvantage. If the enemy is controlling the pace of the fight, then you will always be outnumbered if you form a wedge defensively. So it, it seems it seems like a weird thing here. And I'm wondering if this is a byproduct of Legion of Terror doctrine, where they are expecting to have things like the sappers and mages to help control how the battlefield works, or even named potentially, or ogres, or you know, things like that. These these very powerful individuals or force multipliers that can help cover the weaknesses of a wedge. I don't know. I, I was trying to piece this together. If it's a, if this is just the, uh, what does it say? That's not, okay. I don't know if this is just the sergeant or lieutenant in charge here falling back on a formation that serves a purpose in a larger battle. And in this instance, isn't necessarily what should be going on. If it's, related to like i said larger infantry doctrine for the the legions or if it's just you know a, a case of <laughs> if not it's just a wedge being an evocative formation for a shield wall to be in and so that's what they are in for the purposes of the story i don't know it, it's just it, that definitely caught my eye pop catherine's too she sees it and says in with her usual callowin eloquence screw that she sends her people to help out the lieutenant, Lieutenant Lieutenant Nock, and goes for the standard herself. Which, yeah, now I understand what names really bring to the table. But it seemed a poor choice then, when I read it the first time. And frankly, I know it works out, but Catherine is perhaps risking setting herself up for a mundane comeuppance. When you lean too heavily on your superiority to the typical, the typical can tip you. I agree that it's interesting that she goes off on her own like this, especially with her understanding of name power and, frankly, the reader's understanding at this point. Um, I was just thinking, it seems, I, I don't know if this is simply a case of the kind of people that Kat interacts with throughout the story, but there is a smidge, I would say, of power creep when it comes to names th over the course of the narrative. Um I, I think that's probably more just as you are interacting with bigger and badder events and people, they're going to be more powerful rather than the story demands power creep. Right. And, but so at this point we have cat who is a little stronger and faster and has an aspect or two lying around. One of which is mostly just useful for honestly, catching her and the readers up to what everybody else already knows. Um, and Kat, even before she had a name, was doing all right in a fight against a sword fighting named in a sword fight. So there's, I, I, I can see on an initial read through why one might think, wow, this is a very bad idea. And knowing how much Kat is lowercase s struggling right now with her named situation sure but knowing what we know at the end it's <laughs> be, being aware of what named can do it seems like sure why doesn't cat go grab the standard and then walk to the fort and knock it down or something that's what named do right oh sorry the mirror knight's not here it's just cat never mind well it's not just names that can give power though i want to note in 
Another one of E.E.'s very deliberate and intended foreshadowing. Catherine is sneaking up the hill, and she acknowledges, quote, The night was on my side, at least. The moon was covered by clouds. She, she likes night and hates the moon. And you think that's like a, a homonym situation where she's talking about Amadeus? Wow, that's really deep. So Kat, Kat says the night is on her side. It's 100% definitely foreshadowing. But uh, in, in that same paragraph, we get uh, a couple of things that I want to comment on um, that are, again, going to be pretty military-focused here, um, which, you know, that's just kind of the chapter we're in. But uh, she sees Nock is fighting some other some soldiers from first company and is kind of just wrecking shop, uh, half naked, grappling with a pair of enemy legionaries, ignoring their blunted blades. And that's, this is the first part of this that I want to, uh, to touch on. The games are interesting to me. They're not, the swords don't have a rule attached to them where if you're struck by the sword, you're quote unquote out or something. There's no, uh, mechanic. It seems for, getting people out considering at the end we have things like okay break their ankles to keep them out of the enemy's lines for a bit or tie them up or you know knocks broken leg that kind of thing <clears throat> we see soldiers running for the the standard and getting tackled as the the method of slowing them down so the games clearly are not meant to teach legionary fighting if swords are clubs and you have to beat your enemy into submission, that's not going to train you in the type of line fighting that you need to do on an actual battlefield. So I, I was thinking about this and some other scenes that we see and trying to piece together what the purpose of the games is. Um, and I came up with a couple of things, and I kind of want to just see what your thoughts on this are. It seems like they are very much about unifying sort of a, a Legion identity. You wear Legion gear, you do fights, you follow orders. You become a legionary, an officer, what have you. And so there's there's that side of things. So very much a, yep, you're in the system now. There's the learning of military hierarchies. You follow the orders of your sergeant who's following the orders of the lieutenant, following orders of the captain. You, regardless of what's going on, there's the, the command structure. So that's getting ingrained. There's stressful situations. You're following orders. Great. And there's a little bit of maybe seeing what operating at the line or half-line level means in stressful situations where you're working together as a group, even if it's not the specific things that you would be doing on in a battle. Um, like, they're not they're not learning the actual tactics or legionary fighting. It, they're learning how to exist as soldiers. And I am sure there's also, I don't know, strategic level thinking for the captains for hellhound for ratface for people like that um but for the even for the sergeants and lieutenants outside of the hierarchy learning it seems like they're not infantry tactics in a battlefield like a pitched battle you don't have a a tenth or a line whatever it was by themselves forming up on a hill to hold it you'd have a whole i don't remember what they're called cohorts or whatever the the breakdown is here because 10 or 20 soldiers is meaningless in a full battle. And and so, I, I don't know, th these games are interesting, what they're actually trying to accomplish and how they're going about it, because there's so much of it that just doesn't fit in with what how soldiers would be actually fighting. And I, I just thought that was 
interesting trying to piece together why the games are such a big deal, why everyone makes such a big deal about who's winning the games and that Hellhound's unbeaten and earning the first company label and all of that. And why are the games important? Because they're ranked and you have competitive kids. Extremely fair, extremely fair. I don't think they need more justification than that. But remember that the War College is not where people go to join the Legions of Terror. The War College is where people go to lead the legions of terror if you just want to enter as foot do like abigail of summerholm and just enter as foot she just kind of accidentally sounds right yeah uh but here we have the future leadership of the legions of terror working together not exactly practicing legion relevant battle situations but practicing thinking with a cool head in times of stress, practicing problem solving, practicing delegation and obedience and innovation and forming those bonds of battle-tested trust without the battle testing. They seem potentially utiliful, even if they're not plainly vigorous simultaneous. Um, excellent vocabulary aside. I, I don't disagree. I, I definitely am not trying to say, I don't see the point of the war college. It seems like they're not teaching anything useful. I'm, I'm just saying that the things they are teaching are interesting, and it's it's a step removed from some of what I'd expect. But at the same time, I guess it makes sense. Black has pretty well standardized and formulized the way that battles work for the the legions. So learning the actual tactics, you, I mean. As weird as it is, you learn that from a book and from drill and that sort of thing, I guess. And you just sort of apply it on the battlefield for the this level of officer. Uh, obviously, the people up at the highest levels, the, the Grems and Sackers and such, they just use their big brains to solve problems. Well, Grem's got a big brain. Sacker's a big old goblin, but there are still limits to cranial size. Oh, uh, so I have in this paragraph one other thing to comment on. Well, two other things to comment on. First, first, actually, I just noticed this. Cat has a, a swearing by hell gods. She says hell gods. It was easier to forget how big, how terrifying orcs could be. We were looking at that sort of thing as she kept saying heavens or gods above that sort of thing. This is slotting into that situation. But I do like that. It seems just awkward enough to be an attempt rather than a road phrase. Because hell gods? It was gods below. No one calls them hell gods. Grew up, Catherine. Yeah, it, it is weird. I, that's not a term we see often that I recall. And it doesn't, doesn't roll off the tongue very easily. And now it's time for Deicide and Applied Blasphemy. Deicide and Applied Blasphemy is our segment where we discuss comments and questions from you, our dear listeners. We have falsely assumed the thrones of your gods, and we invite you in this segment to challenge us for the mantles. You will not succeed, and we will continue on, unceasing and unerring. Today's comments come from Monty, a self-described huge fan of both the podcast and a practical guide to evil in general. Monty had a, a number of things to say. First of all, just something that we want to keep in mind going forward, uh, since we don't have a great answer. Uh, the email asks about how long has the Black Knight been the Black Knight? We know that he's been in the role for at least 20 years and a 
fair bit before that, but uh, we'll see if the text provides us any specific years. Listeners, if you happen to know offhand, we'd love to hear from you. I recall he was older than the early to mid middle age you might expect from someone of his appearance, but within mortal bounds. Monty also brings up a nice little bit of detail that we sort of glossed over or weren't necessarily thinking about. Um, Not missed, because this would be embarrassing to have missed. Of course. The email says, regarding the most recent episode, the powders the goblins were brewing that lead to the red letter was almost certainly gunpowder. Monty goes on to say that uh, that makes sense, giving the what the gnomes are all about, and yeah, probably. That makes perfect sense. I had been thinking some kind of vague alchemy, but gunpowder makes perfect sense since the gnomes seem to be a in-universe device for keeping Colernia high fantasy trope filled and not having gunpowder works for that. The fact that the gnomes, especially this gunpowder, seem to be entirely against what to us is mundane machinery while allowing absurd magic means that I do now firmly believe that this great farming machine of nefariouses was a John Deere tractor. <laughs> I, I think you're probably right. That, that fits in perfectly with what we know. The final part of this email is just an open-ended question about why we hate the Grilgrim so much. Monty specifically asks if we'd be willing to do sort of a special episode on the Grilgrim. Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to be possible since we have approximately 650 plus episodes left to do. But as the Grilgrim begins to get more screen time, or any screen time, we will spend a lot of time talking about him, why we hate him, why we love to hate him. To be clear, we adore the character. He is a fantastic part of this series. So much of what happens on screen relates to him in a really interesting and engaging way. We just think he's a vile person. Would rather be in a world where he would hang. As usual, it is incredibly hard to argue with Cordelia. We have seen your challenges, your questions, and your doubts hang, and we stand unvanquished and unperturbed. And if you would like to challenge us for the mantles of your gods that we have thrown down before their very thrones, please feel free to reach out to us at thelongprice at gmail.com with any questions, comments, corrections, if you can find any. And we will look forward to hearing from you. Interesting. Well, we get... we. So Hakram says a word. Many words. When Catherine recognizes that the mage line was likely the first one to be hit, Hakram curses and says... Well, I'm not sure if we should read digraphs like in English in Karsum, but or if this is even Karsum, but he says, Bashal, like this is why they call her the Hellhound. Bashal, Bashal, uh, those are the two ways I can think to pronounce S-H. Karsum? Nsethwa? Tagrebi? I would imagine. Untranslated Kalo in Lower Eastern? <laughs> I would imagine Karsum, given other times where Hakram is caught off guard and swears it is in Karsum. That seems to be his go-to. Unsurprisingly. A quick Google search pulls it out as an ancient Hebrew word, bashal, bashal. Uh, I'm in an Old Testament Hebrew lexicon, so it appears in the Hebrew Bible. And it means there to boil, cook, bake, roast, ripen, or grow ripe. So I don't think it's related. Yeah, I, I agree. That doesn't sound like it applies here. No, ripening. Or not even ach, ripening. Ripeness like this is why they call her the Hellhound. 
cuisine like this. That's why they call it. Well, actually, that kind of feels orky when you think about it. A bit. Almost, yeah. <laughs> hmm. I'm going with unrelated, but if it is, it's that. Sorry, I was looking up, uh, trying to remember what Karsum mapped to real life language wise, and apparently it just doesn't. It's the gibberish one? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's got some rough Turkish vocabulary sometimes, but really just isn't anything. So, which honestly, probably a good call. Fantasy orcs have been historically fraught when it comes to mapping them to real world cultures. So, even when we see them exemplified by such cuties as Hakram and Juniper, and not. You just don't need to saddle anyone with this. Any comparison of, hey, you people are like orcs, but they're cool orcs. Yeah, not great. <laughs> and it is always you people. Not, it's never, oh, yeah. We French Canadians are, no, no, no. Oh, for sure. Hakram is proving useful. He is obedient to Catherine. He is useful to Catherine. And he's swift. Let's get out of here before they have time to form up. I, Catherine, said, wounded first. I want them out of the way if this turns into a fighting retreat. Hakram saluted and disappeared into the mass of soldiers without another word. And spoiler alert, it gets done and gets done right. And Catherine thinks to herself, not for the first time tonight. I was glad I'd gotten the tall orc as my sergeant. I'm glad, too. The fate of the world hinged thereupon. Yeah, more or less. Uh, Hakram is the truest hero. And I mean that in all senses of the word, except the one that matters for this story. Speaking of things falling into place, we can see not only Hakram slotting easily into his future role, or maybe I should say role, but Catherine as well, a far future role. She meets a hierarchical equal, half naked, 200 pounds, and Nox says, they'll hunt us down if we go into the rocks. Catherine says, that's why we won't be heading there. She makes a plan. There's enough woods in the valley to hide us until we have a better idea of what's going on. And Nock looks at her for a long, silent moment. And then he says, I'm ceding command of our line to Lieutenant Callow for now. Catherine is already usurping the powers of equal, as one day she will under the truth and terms, and indeed will as warden. I mean, yeah, she's, that's... That is who Kat is, generally speaking. Also, it she has a little bit of a narrative weight here by having a name in the War College. Being the only person here with that makes her, even outside of our level of narrative, within the setting itself, she's the main character here. Like That's just the case. So it makes sense that she would get some extra responsibility 12 hours into being here or less. She's not just more important to us. She's not just more important to the story. She's not just more important in the Empire, but on a metaphysical, diegetic level, she's a protagonist. Absolutely. Or at least a secondary protagonist. We do see the true hero of the story, again, lowercase h, show up pretty shortly. We hadn't been walking for a quarter bell when Sergeant Robber popped out of the darkness, and in true goblin fashion, in true robber fashion, my boy, my boy, my darling, my sweet... The goblin had half a dozen sword points resting on his throat in the blink of an eye, but he merely grinned, supremely unconcerned. I love him. I love him. I will not let harm befall him this time. It is maybe the greatest failing of Practical Guide as a whole that we have to wait 15 chapters before Robber shows up on screen. Uh, And it is just 
the work is now correct. It's it's doing what it's supposed to do. Robber is here. I've I've missed him these last sixteen episodes. We haven't had a chance to talk about him, and now we can constantly and exclusively, probably. No, I won't be talking about anyone else. Welcome to Podcast Guys Talking Robber. Yes, guys, talking Robber. It's a whirlwind reread of Robber's parts of a Practical Guide to Evil. Where Robert is extraordinarily special, of course, and he themes that way as we get a little bit of the description in here, a little bit of what the goblins can do, what he's capable of. But we don't really know why he's such a big deal yet. We don't know exactly what these sappers mean to the legions and what Robert specifically means. And that's kind of the case with a lot of these early chapters is ideas or people or lowercase our roles are introduced and their capabilities are left pretty vague until we see them in action even the more mundane mystical is unclear catherine regrets that they lost so many soldiers that they don't even have one mage but what does a mage do they've got some healing we know that can they throw fireballs can they shoot lightning can they say some twisted latin and wave a little stick and cause magical effects and somehow be transphobic unclear which is not to say that the lack of clarity about what they do is a problem here because obviously oh no we don't have magic when that was an option it's a big loss i don't care what the magic is i want it give me the magic even if it turns out which at this point it very well could be the case even if it turns out that mages do exactly one thing on the battlefield and that's healing that's a really big deal Having soldiers who are injured be able to get back up and keep fighting is absolutely massive. And Cat's got a lot of injured. So it, it even if that was the extent, still a very, very big deal. Okay, yes, but you really should choose your words more carefully. Having soldiers get up and fight is great if they're still on your side. If a soldier gets killed and rises up and attacks their former comrades, you've got an apocalypse waiting to happen. That's a Nessie tactic. You're right. I, I suppose that is a fair point. Not just Nessie. There are some other people who employ that, but yes. Hockram continues to prove his worth. When Catherine seeks to set up a watch, she was pleasantly surprised to find Hockram had already done the same without my asking. I'm not saying Hockram is literally scribe, but only because Eudokia could never. More like Eudopia, am I right? <laughs> it's, I mean, there's a reason that Hockram earns a name comes into a mantle that is explicitly being a right-hand man to a military leader. He's very, very good at it. Like, extremely good at it. And this is him at his worst. This is him at, maybe not his worst. He's got, he gets a little sliced up and depressed later. But this is him at his narratively weakest, yeah. We can't linger here because the story doesn't linger. This chapter moves fast. They've been attacked. They have fled through the hills, well, the forests. They have found a place to rest. They've set up a watch. They've talked about tomorrow. They've eaten. They've blah, blah, maybe they haven't eaten yet. But they've done so much. And then, all of a sudden, boom, they're already making an assault on the watchtower. Paragraph break. My guy counted ten. Robert croaked from my side, the both of us in cover behind a tree. They still have no idea we're here. We're moving as fast as the goblins do. This is later PGTE five chapters in? at least it it definitely yeah it it this war game is it's 
focused on the action and the action is coming in bursts and we're it's we're we're speeding through it. I think part of it is we the stakes are low enough that we don't need to have the character sitting around and just sort of chatting and relaxing so that speeds things up a little bit and but it, this this chapter specifically did feel breakneck. Hakram has been on screen two chapters now and towards two chapters right he's been on screen for less than two chapters now and we're already seeing a very very important part of his everything his entire character he's getting the soldiers in line and commanding them forward and refers to them as my pretties akram is uh, a notorious flirt and is that's what we call it now <laughs> and he is <laughs> i'm i'm this is a family podcast okay and he's diving right in with that basically in what his seventh line spoken in the entire story all i'm saying is hockham knows what he's about and now we do too as opposed to the goblins who i think are a little confused may i allow me Please. I've got bright sticks if you want to make an impression, Callow. The goblin wheedled. You know which goblin. Grinning at the idea of setting off the mostly harmless version of the goblin alchemy in the faces of the soldiers who'd taken his lieutenant. Nothing like a little flash and bang to start a party. How many? I asked, keeping her voice down. About twelve, and half that many cussers, Robert replied. That's plenty enough for a scrap like this. Tell me about these cussers. I want to know about the cussers. Yeah, it... it... This right here is one reason why how the why the early battles against the um the devils in the story felt weird to me. I did not fully understand how the tr- how different the training versions of goblin munitions were to their normal cousins, I guess. We get cussers and some kind of weaker bright stick here and they're useful and we'll we'll see more of them and we'll talk about them a lot next chapter i'm sure and so when they started getting thrown against actual dangerous beings i was astounded when they were effective so it's it's important to remember that these are they have a different name they're they're an entirely different class of munition these things used in the the training games and you know um, it's they're gonna be fun we're gonna we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about goblin munitions i have a feeling if there are any more in the story true i guess we don't know yet dear co-host yes what physical adjectives would you would you use to describe Catherine foundling future black queen future warden future duchess of moonless nights future high priestess under the night uh at the age and time when she enters the war college at the present time physically what you like short okay okay and how would you describe the shortest of the orcs in the world all i see i see okay so we have these elements here and i'd like to arrange them into opposition perhaps set them against each other which is to say catherine sets herself against an orc a tall orc with a vivid scar running up his cheeks stood before me as they make their assault on the watchtower the chapter moves fast we'll move fast but I slammed my shield against his, knocking him back and striking in the opening I'd made. The blunted blade hit the back of my opponent's knee and forced him to kneel. Not just an orc, a tall orc with a vivid scar, making him even cooler. And Catherine batters him down, beats him to his knees, and then kicks him in the gut to make sure he wouldn't get up, 
knocking him out for good with a strike to the temple. The, the savagery, the strength, the Kelwin resolve. If I saw her do this, I would follow her to the ends of the earth and die in the first of the summer incursions. Die in the winter incursions. Die at the demon. Die would die at the devils. Well, this is impressive and all, but you have to remember, this was a very easy fight for her because I think you may be forgetting she is wearing armor right now. She does have her armor again. Oh, she's so fast. So she's so fast. But yes, it, we are seeing what it's like when somebody with even a weak, watered-down version of a name at this point goes up against somebody who doesn't have one, and it's just a one-on-one -on -one fight. It's pretty lopsided. And it's people are unsure what's up with Catherine. And she, you know, last chapter she mentioned something about having seen combat before and there's discussion about ogres and we'll see next chapter that the rumor of her prowess in battle uh, grows a bit and i have a feeling that some of that comes from this exact moment watching her easily dismantle and utterly thrash an orc who's probably what three times her height minimum so you will have to remind me have you ever played generic fantasy tabletop rpg uh, I've dabbled in the world's most popular role-playing game. Well, have you ever noticed how good parties sometimes end up taking prisoners with frequency because they can't justify killing them, even though they really want to, because prisoners are the worst to have in a game? But in order to keep those prisoners, sometimes they go to frightening lengths. Of course. The good old, well, I guess we'll have to chop off their legs, or, well, we'll remove their tongue, we can put it back with regeneration later. Or the, well, if we put a chain through them and cast regeneration on them so that they can heal over it, they won't be able to escape without ripping their body apart, but they also won't die from the horrible wound. So it's not even, it's not even not good to do to them. We can still say, stay morally good, right? Or there are things like that. These are hypotheticals that totally haven't regularly happened to me. Naturally. Yeah, of course. I, I kind of enjoy that we see a bit of that. They get some prisoners and, uh, well... They get prisoners that they can't keep. And so they just need to, you know, make sure Juniper can't use them. And so the humane resolution is really the obvious one. Pretty much the only solution, yeah. You just break an ankle on each person. Why not? Who among us would not? Absolutely. Who among us hasn't? I adore this scene, and I'm not a, I don't know if I can put my finger on why, but this is a scene that sticks with me on my first read through the entire way through and going into the reread, I was thinking about this scene, I, th this moment of cat thinking, well, we can't interrogate them, break their ankles. It's, it's such a pragmatic, not cruel. Practical. But, yeah. Oh, thank you. Practical and not cruel, but bordering on it solution to a relatively mundane problem we have more people than we can easily keep track of it just it's it i don't know i i just really like the moment i like the scene and it it it's maybe emblematic of early practical guide how cat handles it i I just really enjoy this and it it has a apparently permanent place in my memory forever now and this episode should take its permanent place in the memory of our listenership I have no doubt that it will. But in order for it to easily fit in said memories, we're going to have to call it there because that is all the time that we have for today. 
Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Robber as we discuss vegetarianism, cannibalism, and other cultural differences. I do love intercultural learning. Wade in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Robber is a fan-made podcast discussing Neurotic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Good Morning by Musa Production. Music for Deicide and Applied Blasphemy was Save As by Toby Lane. Outer music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron in liege, always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, chapter 17, set. Set.